Good evening. Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club held here in association with the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Um, Lisa McInerney's The Glorious Heresies took me by surprise, I must admit. Um, I had been stealing myself for something more self-consciously literary, slow-moving and studied, beautifully written, most probably, but perhaps a little underpowered in the plot department, all dressed up but nowhere urgent to go. Instead, I was treated to a literary thriller, Colin Bateman crossed with Colin Barrett, a helter-skelter rollercoaster ride of a novel that fearlessly looked the underbelly of our society right in the belly, and written in a feisty, not to say a foul-mouthed cork vernacular. It's fast-paced, fiercely honest, and that rare quality that deserves to be prized more highly. It is fierce funny too. Kevin Barry called it totally and unmistakably the real deal. Donald Ryan found it a real stunner, a wild ride of a read, while Colin Barrett, again, praised a gripping and often riotously funny tale. Joseph O'Connor turned his amp up to 11 in his Irish Times review. He said, this is a big, brassy, sexy beast of a book, a strong, confident debut, an accomplished, seriously enjoyable and high-octane morality tale, full of empathy, feeling and soul. Embarrassed yet? <laughs> So it was a no-brainer to pick it at this month, as this month's Irish Times book club title, which was doubtless at the forefront of the minds of the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction jury when they long-listed it a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell us, Lisa, what your novel is about and how it came about? Well, when I say about, uh, there's, there's like, I don't even have a protagonist, I have five protagonists, so it's, it's about... The terrible things that happen after a person accidentally kills somebody who intrudes on her home by hitting over the head with a religious ornament. And um, yeah, that one kind of act of, of kind of evil. I can't even say evil, can I? Because she didn't really mean to do it. But one act of ridiculous stupidity uh, kind of impinges, impinges on the life of about five other, five or six other people. I don't even know how many protagonists I have anymore, do I? A welter. Like, I have five and a half because there's one I don't really like, so I don't really count her. But um, yeah, so all sorts of terrible things happen, and um, it's kind of like a cumulative thing of bad decisions, I think, really. Mm -hmm. But um, hopefully, kind of funny at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's very funny. Um, I found it interesting that when Julian Goff a few years back was slagging off what he called Ireland's pompous provincial literary community as a priestly caste, scribbling by candlelight, cut off from the electric current of the culture. Way back in 2010, you were one of the few writers that he singled out for praise on the strength of your Arse End of Ireland blog, where you first made your name. Again, last year, when I asked him to list his favorite female Irish writer for our Irish Women Writers series, he picked you as a vitally important chronicler of real Irish life, whose sentences were slangy and swung with jazz and with an explosive, dangerous and original sense of humor. High praise indeed then, before your first novel was even published. Um, I know your writing has developed significantly since then, but can you trace for me uh, or for us your evolution from blogging to becoming a best-selling novelist? It's kind of funny because um, when I blogged, it was, I was blogging about life as I saw it and I was living in a council estate in, in a small town at the time. Um, so in a sense, I suppose I've never really, like when I went on to write fiction, my fiction is kind of also focused very much on, on people who are on the fringes 
of Irish life. And I remember at the time of the blog, one of the things that people seemed to read it for was the fact that it was, this is at the height of the Celtic Tiger. And people kind of said, well, this is, this is a side of life that I suppose we didn't necessarily want to broadcast back then. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess in terms of an evolution, it's, it's still, I think my fiction writing is still kind of very slangy, still very irreverent. Um, every time I say that, I worry I'm going to say it's very irrelevant. <laughs> it is not irrelevant. <laughs> it is irreverent. Um, yeah, so I, mean, I, I don't really know if there is that much of an evolution because the whole reason that I started blogging in the first place was I figured it might be a way for me to become a novelist, which is kind of, I remember, it, this has been around 2006 or so, and I remember at the time there was this kind of thing with the, with the Sunday Times had written this piece about how they had, I, I can't remember the writer's name, they had sent out the work of Booker Prize winner, Nobel laureate, like anonymously to all these like 20 agents and um, publishers around London and every single one of them had rejected it mm. because anonymously they didn't know who this person was or they didn't really care, you know, they just said, who is this, why should we, why should we bother? So that set off these alarm bells in my head and said, nobody's going to care who I am or, or know what I am. I must write a blog. Blogs were really big at the time. This sounds ridiculous now. But at the time, this made total sense because blogs were huge in Ireland mm -hmm. at the time, and quite a few of us, I think, went on to. There were there were like a lot of, you know, as I would have called at the time, real writers writing blogs too. Julian was writing a blog. Mm -hmm. um, Arlene Hunt was writing a blog. Um, Sinead Gleeson was blogging. You know, so yeah, in a sense, yeah. So it kind of all worked really, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um. You had a lot of champions early on. You mentioned Sinead Gleeson, who I think um, put you in touch with your agent, mm -hmm. Ivan Mulcahy, um, Belinda McKeown, um, but I think perhaps especially um, Kevin Barry was a big influence um, at the start of your career. Could you tell me a bit about him? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kevin at the time was writing, or he was putting together a list of, of the, the short stories he wanted for Town & Country, which is the Faber anthology that was over a few years ago. And he had been turned on to the blog. I, 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 it could have been by Sinead Leeson, it could have been by Julian Goff. I actually don't remember who. Or maybe he happened upon it himself. I'm not saying that Kevin doesn't know what he was Googling. I'm sure he does. But um, he sent me an email out of the blue and said, look, I, I don't know if you write fiction, if you have any interest in writing fiction, but if you do, could you send me a short story? And of course, naturally, I looked at this email and went, who is this? Who is this pretending to be Kevin Barry? How dare people toy with my emotions? So, but it turned out it was Kevin Barry. So I had never written a short story up to that point because I, I considered myself a novelist. And I've, 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 I've reckoned that now. But um, oh yeah, I kind of hastily scribbled together a couple of stories from him. He liked one of them. And uh, yeah, he stuck it in town and country. And for that, I will, I think, forever be indebted to him. And he's, he's sick of me hearing. Mm -hmm. yeah, he's sick of hearing me tell him this. I tell him every time I meet him. Kevin, you're so great, you know, so it's kind of sad, really. Do you think um, there's been talk about sort of, you know, gender in, in fiction, Irish fiction included? What about uh, the issue of class then? Do you, do, you, do you think that there is an underrepresentation of, I don't know, working class or an underclass in, in Irish fiction? Or is that also maybe reflected in the, the use of vernacular? Um, I published a piece recently from a Northern writer making the point that there was a whole 
swathe of vocabulary that you, you never read. She was talking about Ulster Scots, mm. but in your case, a kind of a, a Cork dialect, if you like. Kevin, I know, has you know has done um, has used vernacular in in his writing, but I'd say it's it's the exception <laughs> rather than the rule. Would you agree? It seems to. I don't know. I, I I actually don't know. I think there may have been a case of writers possibly avoiding the vernacular for a while. That just seemed to be the trend, is to kind of show that you know we were a very literary country. <coughs> so in terms of class, I don't know. I mean, I mean, one of our most successful writers ever is Roddy Doyle, who wrote nearly entirely in vernacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's large parts of of his earlier novels, the Barrytown trilogy, that that is just dialogue, large parts of it. So, um, I don't know. I I, I wonder. I mean. We do have such a great literary tradition. Maybe people are a little bit afraid of going into slang. I don't really know. Um, in terms of class, this is the thing. I think before I would have been quite. I would have had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about class. I would have considered because I think this is a huge or it seems to be a problem that people talk about in the UK that that working class people are kind of being shoved out of the arts because you can't afford to to write or to act or to. So I think I would have probably taken on more of that and, and figured that that was the case in Ireland as well. Now, the more I kind of meet other writers, hang out with other writers, I don't actually know how true that is. It seems to be a lot of, a lot of us out there, yeah, writing about very normal kind of sides of Irish life. Or and also perhaps compared to some of the other arts, it costs less to... You say that. You say that. Have you a very expensive lifestyle? Well, I do. I've gotten quite a taste for certain things. No, um, (laughs) you still have to. Like, I, I don't. I, I've huge, huge respect for any writer that goes off and does a day job and then comes home and writes a novel. I mean, that to me is just. I can't even get my head around that. I mean, I, I worked for years. I was a receptionist down in Cork, in a building company, for years. And I was slowly going mad because even even trying to write when I got home drove me kind of insane. So, I mean, you still have your rent to pay. You still have to eat. You still have to... I know it's not very romantic to say that, is it? You're supposed to be kind of there in your, your freezing little hovel writing by candlelight and, and suffering all sorts of diseases and people are thrilled. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. So, uh, hmm. lost my train of thought now. What about the dialect then? Like, was it was that a like was it important for you to kind of reflect that in, in your writing the kind of um, the vocabulary of the way of speaking of the people of Cork that you had met? It, it's not something I kind of set out to do, really. To be honest, um, I was in Cork when I suppose when I found my voice when I kind of really started writing. I was in Cork, so a lot of my characters kind of came out speaking in Cork dialect, and I don't think. You can't really you can't write a novel set in Cork without having Cork Hiberno in there, which is very which is fantastic. It's it's the most uh, like I know I'm very biased now, and everybody else is going to get very annoyed. But I actually think it's the most lively of the Irish dialects, and it's the most unique. If something can be more written, do you know what? Um, you know, and, and it wrecks my head to be honest that people don't write in kind of any of the Munster dialects more. But I guess I guess. A lot of a lot of our writers are based in Dublin or come from Dublin or you know so mm-hmm. there is, I mean that's not that's not unusual because you know obviously most Irish people seem to live in Dublin so something unusual in that either. I'm trying to think back like Frank O'Connor short stories. It's a long time since I read them, but was there? Did you get a sense of that he was a Cork writer? I don't think I did. You know, but that said, bear in mind the last time I read Frank O'Connor, 
I was in school. Mm-hmm. So when I read Frank O'Connor at school, I, 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 I had a vendetta against him in my head. I was like, oh, Frank O'Connor. I should read him again now, because apparently, you know, if you're not doing it for school, mm-hmm. apparently he's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? So um, um, I was actually told this quite recently, so maybe I'm being a bit unfair on Frank. But I do, I, to me, Frank was kind of, when he wrote it, was very much kind of the Ireland of my, my, my grandmother or it seemed to be a, a lovely kind of a warm Irish kind of vernacular, but there wasn't anything particularly cork about it, I felt. But, like I said, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is possible. Of course, long before Heresies, there was another novel, wasn't there? Um, the even more wonderfully named Thundercloud, <laughs> about a magical <laughs> horse. How the hell do you know that? Uh, I've done my research. <laughs> Can you tell us a little about that um, early? Thundercloud was a wonderful tome I wrote when I was eight and I still have it at home. It was written in red biro and I did the illustrations myself. It was about a magical horse because I don't think an eight-year-old girl has ever written a book that didn't have a magical horse in it. But yes, Thundercloud because I didn't know how to spell. God love me. And luckily now I have an editor so I don't need to worry about misspellings. He fixes them all. Um, Yeah, no, I was always writing. I wrote all... People say, when did you start writing? I don't remember starting writing. Kind of always how we made sense of anything, really. Did anybody encourage you, whether at school or at home, or we weren't a very bookish household. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they encouraged it in a sense that oh, Lisa's been nice and quiet. Here, have another red biro. Off you go, love. No, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, magic horse is fantastic. Um, but we had um, like the books we had in the house would have been by. Catherine Cookson and Alistair McLean and you know they wouldn't mm-hmm. and we had the World Book Encyclopedia which is great we didn't even have Britannica God love us we had just the World Book which is kind of like the poor cousin um, once kind of my family realised I was into writing they did kind of encourage it but not too much mm-hmm. and I think even now although everyone's very proud I don't know how much of them have actually read Heresies if you're listening read heresy <laughs> as long have, as you buy it actually it's great have you caught them bluffing about something in chapter 3 uh, no but I'm going to start laying traps mm-hmm. no yeah I'm going to start catching them tell us a bit about um, influences then um, and the Q&A that we published today um, you mentioned one in particular junk by Melvin Burgess oh god yeah that was the, this is the I read that I think it was 15 when that when I read Junk by Melvin Burgess. It's a YA novel and it's about um, two kids, two young kids in, I think it's Bristol, isn't it Bristol? Mm-hmm. Uh, who go on to become heroin addicts. Of course, I mean, everything I love, all the books I loved when I was a kid and the books I continue to love now are grim. They're, you know, the grimmest of the grim. I, I loved that book. It actually, it just opened my mind to a different way of writing, I think. Um, the fact that in it he hopped from character to character he had all these characters he didn't space them out and give it a certain amount of time to each to each voice he kind of would jump in and out of heads there's some characters there that only got one chapter there's other characters that got loads of chapters he didn't play by any rules with it he went in and out of third person and he kind of focused on characters when they were doing the most awful things things that i up to that point, no, I was, I was only 15, but up to that point I kind of hadn't realised that you could write stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it blew my mind, that book, actually. If you see the state of it, I still have it at home. It's like, it's barely got a cover anymore, it's all the colours gone off it. But I, I, I love that book. And I, and I guess when I look at the books that I love now, and they're grim, I don't know if I mentioned that, 
Um, Hubert Selby Jr. is my, my big kind of love in that sense. And it feels to me like a progression from Melvin Burgess all the way up to here are teenagers acting badly, here are adults acting badly, they're much worse. Did it give you the license, do you think, to, to go darker or deeper than you might otherwise Definitely. Have? Definitely. I mean, up to that, I, can, I, can, I, I still have the stuff I used to write when I was a teenager in a box at home. And one day I'll actually be brave enough to set fire to the whole... Oh, I was just appalling. I kind of get embarrassed even thinking about it. But up, up to that point, I was writing about magic horses, obviously. But I was also writing kind of lovely things where people said nice things to each other and stuff. And after that, you could just see... Just see the degeneration of Lisa, kind of, no, no, life is terrible. Let's, let's focus on the gritty stuff. Let's focus on what makes people miserable. Wonderful. Do, do you still have a filter, I wonder? Um, I remember reading, you, you were speaking about a particular passage in the book, uh, which was pretty dark, but you were saying that, um, I think something along the lines of, you kind of slightly shied away from going as as dark as you might have? I was very, like, I don't want to kind of talk too much about the scene because it occurs near the end of the book and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But, yeah, I very much feel that when I was writing that, I wrote it kind of, if you can imagine me kind of, like, as far away from my typewriter. Typewriter? I don't even have to. Keyboards. <laughs> I don't have a typewriter. God, I'm not a hipster. Um, far away from my keyboard as possible, mm. kind of using, as you know, very few words and see how, how can I... How can I describe what's happened here without focusing too much on it? Now I'm kind of I've, I've just kind of handed in another draft of the second novel, and I feel I'm less afraid of kind of writing about things that are dark or writing about things that are unpleasant for for many reasons, for any reason really. Yeah, I've, I've but I look at that piece now and I go, I could have done, I could have gone so much darker with that. And then you're like, Lisa, what's wrong with you? You don't want to go much darker with that bloody scene. It's dark enough as it is. People will think you're weird. Mm. Are you your own worst critic? Like, you know, Joe McGahorn and other writers, um, you know, are constantly rewriting their, their work. Um, you know, would you be, if you were allowed, would you like to get your hands on a draft of Glorious Heresies again and, oh, God, yeah. and rewrite it? Yeah. God, yeah. God, yeah. I keep seeing things that I, oh, what did you say that for? That's very on the nose, Lisa. You know, um, yeah, I, 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 don't think there is a writer out there, certainly not a bloody good writer out there, who isn't self-critical to probably pathological degree. I, yeah, I, 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 I'm very much my own worst, worst critic. I, I write something and somebody goes, that's, that's quite good, you got something there. And I'm like, it's terrible, everybody hates me. But that's, that's kind of good for you, because then you go in and, and you kind of, you rip it apart and, and you're less sentimental about it, because there's nothing special in having written something down, I don't think. It's, it's just, when you start, it's just a big lump of rock. You've got to keep chipping away at it. The idea of writing is rewriting, and that doesn't necessarily finish when the thing is published. Oh, God, no. God, no. But luckily, like, for me, what I did with the second novel is it's, it's taken some of the characters from Heresies, and it kind of functions as a sort of sequel. So, in a sense, I am still rewriting Heresies. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, when, when that finishes, I'm probably going to go into a terrible depression. Because I won't be able to... Well, there's a third part of the trilogy. There is the third part, yeah. But when that finishes, then I will be <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. When did you realise, like, already for, for a debut novel, it's, it's a pretty chunky... Um, it's huge. ...piece of prose, like 370 pages, and quite a lot of ca ca cast of characters, as you said, and quite a lot of um, plots or, or uh, plates spinning at once. When did you realise that, actually, it's not one big novel, it's... 
part of a trilogy? It's not so much when did I realise it, it's when did I think I'd get away with it. Because when I was writing Heresies, I kind of thought, you know, they'll never let me write a second one based on the same stuff or going back to the same characters. And when I kind of tentatively brought it up with my agent, he went, oh, fantastic, that's great. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, and I was, I was just so pleased, I was taken aback. And very recently, my editor asked me, you know, what's your outline? What are your plans for book three? Mm. And up to that point, I had thought that even thinking about book three was an indulgence that I was kind of spending too much time with these characters and I was a bit too in love with them. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it kind of gave me a license to, to say no. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think after, like, I, I think there's enough material in there in my head that I could easily write 10 books about the same thing, but I have to stop myself mm-hmm. because no one will want to hear me going on for that bloody long. And I would, I'd need to show myself that I could write something else or take it somewhere else or just focus on something else. Yeah, three is three feels like a, I'm being spoiled actually. Mm-hmm. Like, did you sign a two book deal or whatever? It's two book, yeah. It's just uh-huh. So you sign a two book deal and then you say, I'm writing a trilogy. Yeah, just to just to wreck everyone's heads. Um, well, you know, you, you you gotta you gotta just give everyone a chance first, don't you, to to do well with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I will give you my third book. <laughs> no, I don't. Sorry. What sort of where do you think the humour um, in your writing comes from? Um, like. Terry Pratchett is another um, influence. Are there are there other writers that maybe have inspired the? I don't think it's it's other writers that kind of inspired any humor that comes out of this novel or that comes out of my own writing. It's it's Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's the way we speak. It's the way we love our gallows humor. It's the way we make a joke about bloody everything. It's the way we laugh at funerals. I think if you're if you're focusing on Ireland, and I know that sounds a bit weird because. A lot of people would have this idea of the, the quintessential Irish novel is, is some, you know, beautiful rough landscape in Connemara and a man stands and looks at a mountain for six hours. But you know, um that's or a not funeral a, in the rain. Or a funeral in the rain. Does it ever yeah. I've been to a few funerals in the rain, I'm trying to remember ones where it was sunny, but I don't think there were any. Hmm, weird. Um I don't know, I think like Irish people the way we speak is is funny we're we're a funny race we're constantly taking the piss out of each other you know we're constantly poking at each other we like to we like to joke so i think if you're writing in the vernacular it would be very hard not to be funny on some level mm-hmm. you know although and i think it's not so much in in heresies it's not so much what happens is funny because it's not what happens is there's one calamity after another but the way people react to things or try to make sense of it through humor that's funny mm-hmm. You know, and it's not like I'm just thinking of you know some of the people you've been compared with, um, Pat McCabe, Irvin Welsh, or Shameless, and again there's some pretty disastrous stuff goes on in in their fiction, whether it's you know drug addiction and train spotting or in Butcher Boy the kind of uh, descent into madness, whatever of the the main character. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, I'm contagious. I'm sorry. You are. Um, one thing that struck me about, say, those comparisons, like all of those are male writers, um, and I think if you gave somebody um, the glorious her- heresies without the cover or whatever, um, they might well um, presume that it was written by a man. Do you, do you think it's gender stereotyping or whatever to sort of um, see the type of fiction that you write as...? It's very hard for me to kind of, to kind of answer that because I would like to think that it shouldn't matter whether it's a, it's a female writer's name or a male writer's name on the cover or you, you don't know what you're getting and stuff. But 
the, even the way people have approached this with me has been kind of like I had I had one person that said to me, you know, this is a very male book. Like none of none of the the, the girls I know liked it, but all the lads did. I'm like, oh, thanks very much. You know, <laughs> I don't know what what does that even mean? You know, I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that that kind of is. I suppose it's 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 the kind of thing that would make you angry, really, wouldn't it? That the fact that you would automatically assume that a book that has, you know, perhaps thriller concepts, in a literary sense, could possibly be could be a very male book. When I think the the, the majority of people who read, for example, crime fiction are mm. women, and we have huge amounts of, of of fantastic writers of crime fiction who are women. So where does this kind of idea come from? See, now I'm thinking rather than answering questions. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm thinking that there are quite a lot of kind of, I don't know, literally, like I'm thinking of people like, say, Colin Bateman or in America, mm. um, Carl Hassan or whatever. Like, you know, there mm. are, I can't, I can't think, I guess, kind of, of literary caper kind of things. Of the female kind of equ- equivalent or whatever. Um, maybe I'm just not well read enough. Um, what about um, the Catholicism and inglorious heresies or whatever, like even the title itself? Is a riff on uh, the glorious mysteries of the Rosary, I guess. It is. Um, like, is it almost like with, with Father Ted, whatever? Like, it's just the sort of the natural backdrop, or whatever. You're like, it isn't Father really. Ted, well, you? I just <laughs> throw it in there. <laughs> a legitimate, a legitimate thing. As in, they will say that it is nothing about you know, it's not a satire in the Catholic Church. It just happens to be that kind of backdrop. Um, I think it's like if you're is it just writing, a natural part of the the Irish scenery? Whatever. I think it is. Even mm. even at this, in this, this is a contemporary book. It's it's kind of set just just <coughs> after the crash. Even at that point, where people are kind of very much coming away from the church, where the church doesn't have so much of an impact on people's lives, the structures that the church left are still there. I don't mean actual churches, although they are structures too. I mean kind of structures in society, the way we kind of, we start off with christenings and we, mm-hmm. you know, the, all these milestones of life and kind of, it would be kind of, di- it, it would be difficult, I think, to write an Irish novel that didn't have some sort of aspect of Catholicism there, whether it's just, maybe just in dialogue, just in people's speech, or maybe just the way people react to things. Um, what I kind of really wanted to do with this, or what I hope I've done with this, is that one of the characters, Maureen, who is the person who, who kills the intruder with her religious ornament. She's not a religious person. She kind of, she collects these ornaments as a kind of a, it's a kitsch thing for her really. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to do with her is have her kind of go on this great kind of, you know, she, she really passionately hates the church. She hates the church because of what she perceives it to have done. But she has just come back to Ireland after 40 years away and the Ireland, Modern Ireland doesn't really correspond with the, the, the kind of battle she's still fighting in her head. It's a very emigrant thing, isn't it? Like the yeah. native country has moved on, they're living in an Ireland of their heads, yeah. you know, so hundreds of miles away. What I wanted to do is that when she does come up against people who are, are kind of representatives of, of this old Catholic Ireland or the Catholic faith, they tend to be fairly moderate and she tends to come across like an absolute lunatic, mm. um, which was very intentional because she's an absolute lunatic. <laughs> Spoilers! Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, because I think that's that's the kind of thing now. The shadow is still there, the Catholic shadow is still there, but the actual bite in it has gone, I think. And we kind of just keep it around like it's it's just this nice doddering old granny in in a corner that we love, and we're like, oh, would you like another sherry? That's how I feel that we react to Catholic early now. 
I see like people going, you know, oh well they're getting the baby christened, of course. And you're like, but you haven't gone to mass in seventeen years. And they're like, ah, mm. oh, well, you know, you know, kind of yeah. structures really left. No, I was thinking. I was just thinking earlier on that you know we've progressed from being a la carte Catholics to kind of lapsed Catholics with an out of date Catholic takeaway meal in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, but um, the census is coming up, so then the, the place will be full of Catholics. Signing again. off, yeah. Because I think people kind of mistake Catholic as meaning Irish. Because if you don't put down Catholic, people might think you're a Protestant. <laughs> and that's the great terror or something. Faith worse than death. It's <laughs> weird, you wrote a very interesting article for the book club on the merits of winging it as a novelist, in other words, rejecting the write-what-you-know school of thought as somewhat safe and self-indulgent possibly, and the danger of the dead hand of too much research dragging down the know-what-you-write approach. Um, instead, you suggest write something that you cannot wholly trust, that it's the writer's duty to encroach to understand what is necessarily theirs to document. Could you enlarge a bit on that idea? I don't, I don't know, like, was I actually just making excuses for myself and trying to go, you know, I, I kind of try to make things a little bit difficult for myself. Um, because I think it's more fun. I think it's more fun as well to kind of write maybe characters that you don't fully understand or have them do things that you don't fully understand or go to. Because I think otherwise you could probably, if you write too closely about things that you have experienced, or things that you have very strong feelings about, then you probably get an absolutely beautiful book out of it. But where's the fun hmm. for yourself? You know, I mean, I think that's probably just you know a very particular thing to me. I could I could think of it a lot a lot of things I could write about, and I probably write very well about. It. But I don't think it would be much fun. Because you'll always know what's happening next. Yeah, and I, and I think it would be a bit like navel gazing, or as I said, novel gazing, which is. Uh, great fun. <laughs> well done, me. Um, I like to. I, I like to kind of. I feel like if you're writing, it's like you know you're painting a floor and you paint yourself into the corner. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay. That sounds like a nightmare to most people, but I, I quite enjoy it. So I like to. I like to write characters where, even the characters themselves are people that I like. My main character for the second book is uh, is a twenty going on twenty one year old man. I have never been a twenty year old man. That's great mm-hmm. fun writing that, you know? I don't know. What um, does the research involve? I couldn't possibly say. Stop waggling <laughs> your eyebrows. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean I mean that's it, I mean that's it, come on. I mean, we've all been young and, and stupid, so I mean is there that much of a difference between a twenty year old man and a twenty year old girl? I think we're all idiots really at the end mm-hmm. of the day. It's most fun to write about idiots really, isn't it? Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. That's just making myself feel better too, but I've never made decisions that bad. You're saying somewhere that you would advise aspiring authors to stop writing and for their own sakes to find something less difficult, less emotionally draining to do with their lives. Mm. How hard do you find it being a writer? Oh, it's not hard at all. I, I just sit around all day pretending I'm an artist, drinking tea and, and kind of feeling very pleased with myself. But there is no you know, jokes aside, it, I find it very difficult because it's, it's a job where you're, the whole output is, it's, it's, it's you, it's, it's, you're almost like you're, you're putting a fraction of your soul down, I know that sounds really wanky, doesn't it? A fraction of your soul down on the page. And if, if people don't like it, or people, it doesn't say anything to anybody, or if people 
react badly to it. That's your fault. And it's not like you, you built a bad thing and it's fallen down. It's like you've put, you've put your heart on a page and nobody likes it. So it's like, it's, it's excruciating in that sense. It's, it's terrifying. But I think a writer can't do anything but write. I think, the only, I think you know you're a writer if the only thing that makes you more miserable than writing is not writing. And I get very antsy when I'm not writing and I'm worse when I am writing, I suppose, really. I'm just a very difficult person to live with, possibly. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean and, and not to mention the fact that, practically, it doesn't really pay very well. It doesn't. I mean, let's, let's be honest. But you, you don't do it for them. Oh, unless they're J.K. Rowling. That, that, that pays well. Or Stephen King. Yeah, I'd like that kind of money. But um, for the rest of us, it's, it's not. So it, it, it is kind of a labour of love, really. You're doing it because you can't not do it. So if you can be put off writing, if you think you're going to be a writer and somebody says something to you like me, says, for the love of God, don't be a writer, and you go, yeah, that sounds good. Fantastic. You've mm. dodged a bullet. But I think a writer cannot be told not to write. So, you know, if you get angry hearing me say, don't be a writer, you probably are one, so you're stuck with it. Just go forth and be miserable, mm-hmm. you know? Given the weekend that's in it and sitting as you are across the road from the Garden of Remembrance, um, what do you reckon the glorious heresies says about the, the state of the nation today, 100 years after the Easter Rising? I, I don't I wouldn't like to say that it says anything in that sense because it feels to me like if I did I'd be kind of being very self-important well you know what I say about Ireland is um, if it does say something it's, it's probably that we have all these characters that exist on the margins of Irish life and they shouldn't be existing on the margins of Irish life we have characters that are falling through the cracks I know that's a cliche but it, it certainly does happen. We have characters that should be getting support. We have characters that are forgotten by their state or have been forgotten 40 years ago by their state or pushed out and things aren't getting any better. And I think Ireland is very good at charging on and, and as long as everything kind of works out in terms of balancing the books or as long as we look good on the international stage, we're very happy. But we've got like massive problems in Ireland. We have massive problems with homelessness, we have massive problems with alcohol, we have we've all these huge social problems and we're kind of ignoring them because ah, we're great crack, do you know, and, and Obama came and he played with a slitter and it's fantastic really, do you know, so I don't know if it, I don't know if I'd like to say that it says something, but if it does, that's what I hope kind of comes across in it, that these aren't, these aren't like the only five degenerates in Ireland, these are ordinary <laughs> people, these are, somebody said to me before, they said, oh my god, how did, how did you come up with such awful reprobates? And I'm like, they're, what? <laughs> they're actually just, they're fairly normal. They've just made a couple of really shitty decisions. I mean, I've, I've known people who've done stuff like this. I've kind of known people who've done absolutely ridiculous things and, and put them their whole lives out of whack for years because of it. That's not unusual, but it, it really shouldn't happen. I know I'm kind of visualising this fabulous Irish utopia where everybody is looked after, but I'm a hippie at heart, I guess. Great. Lisa, would you like to read a passage? Um... <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm burying my soul there. <laughs> Great, well done. Now you've got that off your chest. <laughs> that said, um, would you like to read a passage uh, from the book? I have... Uh... 
Yeah. Yeah, I'll yeah. read a passage, I'll read a bit of a passage anyway. Uh, which I have somewhere. Oh, fantastic. More wine has come. Okay. I'll read the bit I always read because I like reading this part. So this is from the, this is, we're, we're staying with Ryan for this, and Ryan at this time is a 15-year-old um, schoolboy and drug dealer. And you can definitely be both, because I've known people who've been both, and they're not weird or reprobates, okay? okay. <clears throat> so it was during a class on Newton's laws of motion that Ryan had an epiphany. Third laws had happened, and probably his third epiphany that month, maybe even that day, if he was to scale epiphanies down to their basest elements, small truths. Snatches of caught breath as playback skipped just enough for him to grab onto something new. Maybe that was just growing up. Although no one around Ryan seemed to suffer the same sudden expansions of consciousness, he was a bright kid. Bit too fucking bright, it had been said. There's no force in the universe, said his teacher, Mr O'Reilly, whose designer spectacles were betrayed by a face married in 1985, which doesn't have an opposing force to balance it. Action and reaction, push and pull. That's the law now, kids. Sir Isaac Newton came up with that one. That's knowledge that came before you and so defines your lives without so much as a by your leave. Shit happens and then more shit happens. Ah, but shit happens right up to the point where it's happening in the face of someone who doesn't want to see it. That was the truth. And the truth had fuck all respect for Sir Isaac Newton and his axioms. So here, Ryan realised, was a case of the pig-headedness of people versus the laws of figures. Physics And while flesh and bones have to obey the push and pull of the universe, the real meat of men, their thoughts and actions and utter arrogance ignores the procedures the universe has run on for aeons. We're all gods when we fucking feel like it. There were a number of tiny holes in the surface of his desk made months or years ago by students with compass points and short attention spans. Ryan jammed his bio into one, pushed down on it circled the crater with ballpoint ink and swept an awkward black trail across to the next. Mr O'Reilly liked to sing to the back of the room and Ryan was right up the tippy top under his nose where, it was said, he could do less damage. Ryan rested his thumb on the top of his pen, balancing it between his touch and the pre-punched holes in the desk and looked up Mr O'Reilly's snout. There was a wedge of soft grey gunk caught in the hairs of his left nostril. Plenty of damage Ryan could do to people's noses directly or through encouraging a lack of self-control. Did Mr O'Reilly ever take a line of coke in his life? In college when he was learning to be a physics teacher, between courses at dinner parties, his moustache brushing the cistern as he hunched over in the understairs toilet as some cunt he was only pretending to like before he came to work every weekday. Ryan had a baggie in his pocket that he didn't yet have a buyer for. He wouldn't usually have brought it someplace like school, but his dad was mid-episode and hanging for trouble, so it had struck Ryan as being a better idea to take it hidden on his person than leave it where greedy guts might get at it. And who knew? Teachers might be a great market to tap into. God knows they needed an edge. He let the biro rattle loose and <coughs> Mr O'Reilly's moustache twitched. He picked up the biro again and moved on to another little hole, balanced it on its tip, let it fall. Mr O'Reilly leaned over the desk with his neck arched like he was doing a push-up. Is there something wrong with you, Ryan? Ryan looked down at the biro. Gravity, I'd say, sir. 
His nearest neighbour sniggered. O'Reilly glanced over and the sniggering was sucked back behind pursed lips. Look at your desk. School property and it's covered in black marks. There were marks on Ryan's face this week. Not black. One, kind of greening on his cheekbone, cradling his left eye like the organic sprouting of a superhero mask. The other, purple and red dashed across the top of his forehead where he'd had it whacked off the lip of a step four from the bottom of the stairs. He knew that there were marks on his face because he had felt them applied and he had examined them extensively in the three days he'd spent at home convalescing under the wide eye of a father both ashamed and peevish. There were gaudy blotches not easily missed. More laws there too, he reckoned. The law of unavoidable contusion, where blunt force trauma drew the blood from his capillaries into the tissue around them. The law of, here, have a splash of ugly, that stated that every run-in with his father had to be recorded on his face. Yeah, the law of fuck you, Ryan, that rendered everyone around him oblivious. Like he wanted people to see, just for fucking once and at the same time didn't want them to notice at all, and it was the latter that people seized on, to the extent where a mustachioed keeper of the peace could stand not six inches from him and not see the fact that his whole fucking head was bawling out for someone to say, Jesus boy, whatever kind of little cunt you are, I'm sure you didn't ask for that one. Very powerful, thank you. Thanks very much, Lisa. Um, could I open up to the floor? Uh, would anyone in the audience like to ask a question? It just sounds so much better read the Cork accent. You know, <laughs> it just comes alive. Well, I can read the whole book, too. Yeah. <laughs> Starting on chapter one. <laughs> That's great, actually. Thanks for saying that. Uh, Lisa, would you ever go back to East Galway? Would you ever consider going back to East Galway for... Um, Work of fiction. Oh, right. Um, I, I, I reckon that you need, like, I'm living in Galway at the moment, and I reckon that you need a bit of distance to be able to write well. I think, like, I need a bit of distance, I'm not saying everybody does, to be able to write well about a place. And that there's a lot of things about kind of the way we speak and act in, in Galway that I don't hear. I don't hear it and I don't understand it, and I need somebody else to kind of point it out to me, what I'm doing is particularly Galway, or, you know. And I actually think as well that I wonder if kind of the, the towns in Galway are the same as the towns everywhere in Ireland. And I think we have a lot of stories about towns in Ireland, or small town life, or rural life and stuff. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's anything there really for me to kind of see that. No, I say that, you had a fabulous idea on the way home with the bus. <laughs> but, um... On the way home tomorrow, not on the way home, no, no we'd forget it. Um, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I will. But, you know, I never say never. Actually, that said, I do have an idea for a character from Connemara, so... We'll go West Galway. West Galway is way more interesting. West Galway is mental. East Galway, very boring. Very boring. Sorry about that, compatriots. I apologise. Anyone else? I'm going to make questions compulsory next time. I do that too, though. I go to things and when they say any questions, I like throw my coat over my head and just avoid it. I wanted it. to take you to write the book, Lisa the Harrison's. Was it like you're working full time on it? Or? The first draft I wrote in a massive rush, I got it done in about four months. Wow. Um, now, we made a few changes after that, but nothing too, nothing too crazy. We didn't really go into it that badly. 
But um, but yeah, and I think that kind of contributes to the pacing of the book, because the book is there is kind of a caper, you kind of feel to it, or, or there is kind of a, a kind of a rush to the plot. Um, I say that the book is set over five years. That sounds a bit mad. There is, yeah, there's a rush of things that are happening in it. Um, yeah, it kind of it kind of all tumbles out, really. So you don't yeah. plot it as such. It's just very spontaneous for <clears throat> you in your writing. This particular one, yeah. I don't know. Will that always be the case? Um, I knew where I wanted it to end. And, but that's it, I, I just started then and kind of, there were characters that even came into focus as I was writing. Um, yeah, just uh, th this particular one was very spontaneous, this, this you're particular You're not a big rewriter, you don't go over and over and over and say you, you did the one draft pretty much, that was it. But when I say I did one draft, I, will, I, I would always like to have it very readable. I know some, I know that sounds very wanky again, but you know, there's some writers out there who kind of, who drag a load of ideas together in the first draft and just try and get it all down and then kind of shape it in a second draft. I like to have it there so that, and, and the reason for that is I've, my husband reads everything for me and I'm addicted to, to people telling me, God, that was great. So that's the only reason I write anything actually. I'd never get anything done otherwise. So I'd like to have a piece for him that was in a readable kind of thing. And, and yeah, so I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah. I, I'd never be able to do that again. Like, the second novel took a good year to get one draft down, and then there was much more extensive rewriting in the second one. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't And I look back at the blogging that I used to do, and I think I used to write these pieces that I'd have, the whole thing would be done in an hour. And they weren't bad, like, they were, and I, I look at that now, and I go, no bloody way could I get 500 words down in an hour. I'd be, oh, no. So now I'm looking at the novel going, no bloody could I write a novel? That's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, but you know. Did you hit roadblocks along the way? Like, you know, you know, you're, you did it like 370 page novel in, in four months. I just wonder like, did that include bits where days where you didn't get, a, you got absolutely nothing done because you just didn't know how to kind of m move on to the, to the next plot point or? I was, I think it was very lucky in that it all kind of came together very nicely in my head as I was writing it. But the start of it, it would have taken me days to kind of write a chapter, days and days and days and days and days and, and to kind of get, and the chapters are long, they're very short, so days and days and days to get something going. And, and then I might write a thousand words and then delete it and go, that's ridiculous. Or I had some character do something that made no sense in the context of the whole thing and I kind of delete that. But towards the end of it, when I could see this, this ending coming at me, I kind of I flew through the end of it. I really, I think I was just desperate to get to the end really at that stage. And when I say four months, I mean, I don't mean I went up and kind of wrote it, you know, an hour and then kind of wandered off to have coffee. I mean, I was doing like, 14, 15 hour days in this ridiculous novel that, that I used to have, yeah, that kind of made me a bit mad actually. What was the response, what's the response been like in England? Obviously it's been long listed for the Baileys, which is, you know, a great coup, great recognition. Does it, do you get the sense that it, it travels very well or very easily? When, when, when people who've read it get in touch, people in the UK get in touch. Yeah, they, they seem to react very well to it, but I guess they probably wouldn't get in touch if they hadn't reacted well to it. Like, they wouldn't probably bother getting in touch to say, I, I found your novel mediocre. Um, yeah, it, it seems to, which I, which I kind of very funny, but like, I had this question as well recently where somebody said, God, I mean, how, how 
imagine that book now in England. And I'm like, well, it's, it's published there. My editor is English, and uh, he managed. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think maybe I'm wondering, and this is a bad thing to think because it's making me feel sad. I wonder if, if our idea of Hiberno-English has been so special as it might be a little bit misguided because they certainly seem to be able to understand us elsewhere, don't they? Mm -hmm. oh. Can I um, ask a question? Would you like to see um, Irish television or the Irish film industry make a, a drama from the book? And in the context that they've just made Brooklyn and John Bangor was the uh, sea. It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of this thing where you, you kind of, you'd love the idea of it happening. But it's also kind of the idea of that happening and that the control being wrested away from you and collaborative writing kind of is, is very frightening to me. I'm not good at collaborative anything, really, let alone collaborative writing. And I know some writers get a great, they, they have fantastic time collaborating or they do really well in kind of pairs or that just sounds like a nightmare to me. And I have done a little bit of, um, a little bit of uh, screenwriting. Uh, it never got anywhere, but it is a little bit first. Yeah, but wouldn't you just hand it over to them, hand the baby over to them, and given that there's a sense that you're trying to give a voice to the voiceless, wouldn't you trust your local film, TV industry with the <laughs> content? Oh, you're putting me in an awful spot. There's no correct answer to that. <laughs> no, I just um, wonder, because you can see the books that are being made and are you know, exported. Yeah. And the narrative that's been exported, is this, or would you want it exported? I think, I think yeah, there is, a, there is a certain thing where you'd like to be able to hand it over and just say, go, you know, make something off this. But it is, it is a kind of a terror as well, because this is something you've kind of, you have very firm ideas about in your head as you're writing it. You can see these characters, you can see how they would deal with the world. You don't necessarily trust anybody else with them. Now, you know, I mean, a writer, in terms of a novelist, is, is a completely different beast to a screenwriter. And yeah. the concerns of a screenwriter or a director are completely different to the kind of, the, I mean, I guess a novelist is a, is a dictator in that sense, or a god, you know, they can do, their, they can do what, they like, what they like with their characters. That doesn't necessarily work elsewhere. I don't know, it's, it's kind of a frightening prospect, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it would be lovely. But it is, there, I think I'd be lying if I didn't say it, the whole idea is kind of nerve-wracking yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> Will it be as, as scary if somebody was to say we're going to translate your book into 10 different languages? Are you offering them? I'm <laughs> <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that would be, although, God, I mean, I say it travels well over to the UK, but I, I like, no, I'm not, I'm not a linguist, but... The idea of somebody trying to, to kind of take not just Hiberno English but Cork urban Hiberno English and, and translate it into another language, I'd love to see somebody try. I think it would be really interesting. Um, yeah, I would, I'd, I'd love that. Yeah. And maybe a glossary. <laughs> maybe a glossary, yeah. <laughs> you need a glossary for me, this version. <laughs> Yes. You strike me as a person who hasn't seen the inside of a church for many years. Therefore, I find it interesting that the title plus the picture on the cover yeah. plus Maureen's confessional scene you plus said. the weapon she used to kill Yeah. Them. I actually have that at home. <laughs> That's a, no, that, I, I actually do. I just find do. it interesting. Is it impossible to shake off your uh, Catholic tradition. You know, I, think. I think so, because I think it is so... It's, it, 
it's so kind of entwined, not just with, Ir with Ireland, but very much with working class Ireland too, which is kind of my background, or, or even rural working class, which again is my background. And it's, it's very hard not to, to remember absolutely, like I did, I did kind of very much come away from the church, I mean, you know, despite, to, despite what my mother would like to believe, but... Do you think that maybe your own voice came through in the confessions? I don't think so, because I do think she's a bit mad. And I do think that I'm, I, I like to, now I know that I, yeah, maybe I'm a bit mad, but um, I do think that I would be a lot more, you know, and that's why kind of I wrote that the priest in the confessional scene is, is very moderate and seems like a nice guy who's trying to do his best for this lady who has just wandered in and she kind of berates him. But I wanted that to kind of feel like that she was the one losing control or she was the one being unfair well, in true. a sense. Do you know? Um, maybe she has a point buried under a lot of resentment and stuff because I guess a lot of the, the problems that Maureen has had in her life kind of were because of Catholic Ireland. I'm not going to say the Catholic Church, but Catholic Ireland as a state. Um, but I do think that, you know, even the church in Ireland has, has modernised to a certain degree and that's something that she wasn't bearing in mind at all. She was just attacking them as a figure, something that had gone wrong in her life, a shadow of something terrible for her. Do you know? Thanks. Anyone else? Um, I was just wondering, is there um, any other styles of writing that you'd like to try that you haven't? Or, you know, different types of writing? Like, is it natural to yourself that you've attempted or is it you'd like to be able to write like that? When you say styles, do you mean this, like, what do you mean? So like, um, I suppose maybe different genres more is more what I mean, but just a, a completely yeah. different form of writing? I don't know if I, I, I like the idea of, being, of giving it a goal, but I don't know would it work. There isn't, there isn't one in particular. No, I don't think so. Um, I do know that every time I try to kind of write, now this wouldn't necessarily be different genres or different styles, but every time I, I set out to write something that I think is going to end up somewhere, that it all kind of ends up sliding into the same kind of steeped in vernacular, quite funny but terribly miserable at the same time kind of thing. Um, I, had these, I had these great... Um, this, this notion there about a year ago that I was going to write a YA novel. I had this, this idea for it. And even when I started developing the idea in my head, it was just, that's not a YA novel at all. That's just a miserable adult novel. What the hell? You know? So I don't know. I, I, I don't know would it actually work for me. I think you're kind of, you have one particular way of writing, or I have one particular way. There's a lot of writers out there who do very well skipping, not just across genres, but across different formats of writing. You can write screenplays, you can write poetry, you can write, you know, I'm lucky if I can write a short story, do you know, so, but I mean, who knows, I might just, I might get better, I hope I get better. Okay, listen Lisa, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to invite you all as well to um, check out the Irish Times website, there's lots of articles by Lisa and by all the people writing about the glorious heresies if you'd like to explore the book further. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight and the Irish Writer Centre for hosting it and John for doing the sound. Uh, the next book club will be uh, Rob Doyle, This is a Ritual, um, starting next week. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs>